let's go to Revelation. Now, in order to first, let's well, don't turn to Revelation. Turn to Daniel, and I'll tell you why we're going to look there. But go to the Psalms and take a right. The Psalms is in the middle of your Bible, so you can pretty much peel your Bible open the middle. There's 150 of them. Go to the right. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. A couple more questions that someone gave me about baptism. Can a baptized Christian who later becomes involved in homosexuality go to hell? Can a baptized Christian who later becomes a promiscuous heterosexual go to hell too? Good questions. First of all, baptism does not secure your way into heaven. All baptism is is a public proclamation that you are a Christian. You're identifying yourself with the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. What gets you born again is your belief in the death, burial, resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of your sin as the payment that you can't pay. That is it. By grace through faith you're saved, not by works, lest any man should boast. If a person is baptized, professes to be a Christian, but goes into homosexuality and he's not grinded in his soul and he's not haggard, again, I can't make the judgment. Chances are he just made lip service. I don't know. Okay, but most people I've seen, for instance, there was a gal who accepted Jesus, said the sinner's prayer, was going to Denton Bible, met this Mormon fellow, fell in love with him, punted the faith, quote, said, I don't believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven, married this fellow, got baptized into the Mormon church. Now, if I was to look at that girl, I'd say, well, she probably just gave lip service, right? But I can't make that judgment. Guess what? I saw her the other day, a year later. She's in the middle of a divorce from this fellow. She has punted the Mormon church, and she's going back to Denton Bible. When I talked to her and asked her, she says, I just got grinded in my soul, basically. Okay? You've got all kinds of instances. <clears throat> if a person is perpetually practicing sin, and there's no grinding in his soul, there's no chastening from God, Chances are, as Hebrews says, that that person is an illegitimate child. Okay? All right, we're going to look at Daniel chapter 2. The reason being is this. We're going to look at the book of Revelation. It's the last book in your Bible. It was written in 95 A.D. <clears throat> there are 16 books in your Old Testament that are prophetical books. There is one in your New. That is Revelation. The word Revelation means the apocalypsis, which means to unveil or to reveal. If you've ever tried to read the book of Revelation, you probably got to about chapter 6 and 7, and then the symbols start flying left and right across your face, and then you end up under your bed saying the Greek alphabet, and your brain has snapped. The reason being is it's a very difficult book to understand. How many people have gone to church and gone to Bible studies and heard someone teach it? Pastors won't touch it. Pastors, you, won't, you very seldom see it preached from the pulpit because they just won't touch it. Number one, it deals with judgment. It deals with man's sin, the wrath of God, the reestablishment of the planet like it was back in the Garden of Eden. And it talks about men's demise. Now, you've heard me say that the Bible is a book that man would not write if he could and could not write if he would because there's so many prophecies in it. He couldn't write it because he can't tell the future. And he would not write if he could because it speaks of his demise, his filthiness, and his sin. Now, you look at most other religious books and what they deal with and how they write about men, you don't see that, do you? They exalt men, basically, but the Bible doesn't. 
tells it like it is. The book of Revelation was written during major persecution of the Christians. The disciples pretty much had all been killed. Paul gets beheaded. Philip gets dragged through the city till he's dead. James gets cut by the sword, pierced by the sword. Peter is crucified upside down with his wife because he felt himself not worthy enough to be crucified like his Lord right side up. Uh, the other ones were stoned and beaten to death. They tried to kill John. And he refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved. They tried to kill him by boiling him in oil, and he wouldn't die. And so they said, man, we don't know about this fella. Let's go stick him out on this rock. And they put him on a rock called Patmos, which was like a prison island. It's right off, um, isn't it off of the Mediterranean? Or the Bulgarian Sea, somewhere up in there? Anyway, it was a mining island. It was just this rock, kind of like Alcatraz, and they stuck him out there. And when he was out there, God gave him these visions. And he told him, you write down everything you see, and thus we have the book of Revelation. And it is closed. It's prophecy. We've got a Genesis, where we've been. We've got a Romans, how do we get to Revelation? And we've got a Revelation of where we're going. And it's closed. And again, you don't need someone coming up to you saying, thus saith the Lord, or I have a word from the Lord. Okay, you've got all the words you're going to get from God, and he has signed off. And now when God speaks to you, he does it through his Holy Spirit that indwells in you through the word of God and not through some other person coming up saying, I have a word from God from you. And I'd say to him, well, it either better be you quoting scripture. If not, it's gas from the food you ate last night. Period. All right. You think I got a little something stuck in my craw on that one? Now. <clears throat> the reason that the book of Revelation was written in symbolic language with literal meaning is this. The Christians were undergoing great persecution. They did not believe, that is the Jewish nation, that Jesus was the Messiah. So they incited the Romans to start great persecution. At one point, Rome ran out of wood because they persecuted and they crucified so many Christians. At one point, there was over 2,000 Christians crucified along the road that ran up to Rome. So where they ran out of that wood. Nero would take Christians, impale them on a pole, cover them with tar, and he would light them using them as garden torches for his party. That was the persecution that was going on at the time. We got it easy. Now, in China, they're still killing people. If you have a Bible, they'll put you in jail for three years. If you keep preaching, you know, you eventually die. So the reason that it was written in symbolic language is so this letter could be passed around to the Christians for encouragement. Here's the future. Here's what it holds. Here's what God is going to do with you, and here's what God's going to do to your enemy. Be encouraged. And in order for you to understand the symbolic language written in the book of Revelation, guess what? You've got to go back to your Old Testament and find out how those symbols were used and the meanings behind them. It's kind of like the key that unlocks the door. That's why a lot of people don't understand it. If you study your Old Testament, then you can find out that symbolic language and the meanings of it, and you can apply it to the New Testament. Uh, Augustine said, Scriptura ex scriptura explicano s which means scripture interprets scripture it's latin and that's the great thing about your bible it will interpret itself 
so it doesn't lead it it doesn't leave it up to some crazy man that's coming up you know out in Waco and says I'm Jesus all right you know he ain't because the Bible will show you that he's not okay you're familiar with the ichthus that fish that you see on the back of people's cars you will not see one on mine because my driving is not a good testimony to the Lord and I notice some of you have been praying because I've been getting tested on the road quite frequently now but anyway what a Christian would do back in those times in order to recognize that the other person was Christian before they would even talk about some of this stuff of Jesus and the scriptures is they would take a stick and they would write a half circle in the sand or in the dirt if the person was a Christian they would write a half circle this way if the person was a Christian he'd put his stick at the front of it and do the half circle that way and you'd have the ichthus which means Jesus Christ our Lord and they'd know that that person was a Christian it's kind of like the secret fraternity handshake okay that's where it came from so the reason that the book of Revelation is written in symbolic language is because you're going to see this letter is passed around to the seven major churches and then trickles down to the other ones that were established by Paul and his missionary journeys and Peter and so forth if that letter would have gotten in the hands of Romans and you're reading in it, it shows the Roman Empire is going to be destroyed and everything else is going to be destroyed and the Christians are going to be exalted and live on this new planet what do you think would happen to the Christians it would not go well with them and so God gave us the book of Revelation it was circulated around those churches in symbolic language literal meanings so they could understand future events and then we can look at it also so that they could be encouraged we could be encouraged because see we know the end of the book I was on a cruise one time suffering for Christ I think I told you this down in the Bahamas I was reading my Bible out by the pool and this lady walks by and I know she walked by and looked at me and she took three more steps and she kind of stopped she said that's a great book I said yeah the best she goes we win you know I like that we know the end of the book it's kind of like if you tape you know a football game fellas and and anybody who tries to tell you what the score was or what happened you go no 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 I haven't watched it yet you try to avoid radio and newspapers because you want to see the game and all of a sudden someone lets out the score you go oh but you watch it anyway and you're sitting there and you're getting so wrapped up in the game and you're sweating you know they might be down to the three-yard line with four seconds left and finally you have to realize wait a minute I know how the how the thing out the ends. I know the outcome. Same thing. So what I want to do with you is take you back to the Old Testament and show you some of the symbols that are used in Revelation. We'll get the meaning of them out of the Old Testament so that we can understand them when we hit the book of Revelation. I want to take you to Daniel chapter 2. Now let me set this up for you. God puts Israel in the land and he gives them this conditional command if you obey me I'm gonna bless you enemies won't be able to overtake you the fruit of the womb will be plentiful and the land will be plentiful but if you disobey me the wombs are gonna dry up lands gonna dry up and the enemies will come and conquer you that's simple blessings from obedience cursings and ultimate destruction from disobedience they go in the land they do fair you got Saul David Solomon then the tribe split you got 10 that go to the north two that go to the south you've got 19 kings in the northern tribe you've got 20 in the southern 
Four good kings in the southern, no good kings in the northern. In 722, God destroys the ten northern kingdoms. The Assyrians come in and scatter them. 400 years prior to that, God kept giving them warning shots. Prophets would come up to him and say, God's going to destroy you. God's going to destroy you. And they would just kill the prophets. They wouldn't listen to them. They were like Lot. 150 years later, he destroyed the southern kingdom. You think they would have learned. God gave them 150 years, more prophets screaming out to them. Repent, repent, turn the nation back into obedience to God. He'll bless you. If not, he's going to destroy you. In 586... God took Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and used him as a whipping rod for Israel. And Nebuchadnezzar came in, and uh, uh, let me see, 586, I think it was, six oh, I think 602, he brought the first wave of captives. He came in. Six, I think it's 602, 605. Anyway, he came into to, uh, Jerusalem, and he took the first wave of captives. Among them was Daniel, Sedrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishaiah. That was their Jewish names, and Nebuchadnezzar changed them. In 596, yeah, 602, 596, he came and took the second wave of people, and amongst that was Ezekiel. And then in 586, he came in and burned the temple and destroyed it. Now, we'll pick it up in chapter 2. Now, what God did was he left Jeremiah back in Jerusalem, prophesying to the people that were left there, the older people that couldn't make the 500-mile journey, the young kids and so forth. Ezekiel was taken in that second wave, and he is prophesying God's word to those outside of Nebuchadnezzar's court, and Daniel is inside Nebuchadnezzar's court. And so God has a mouthpiece in all three areas where his people are. From 586 until the second coming of Christ, it is a time period referred to as the time of the Gentiles. When God rose up Abraham and created the nation Israel, he said, I'm going to put you in this promised land and you will be the kings of the earth, kind of like a second Adam. You will rule the planet. And all the nations of the earth will come to you like a feeding trough to get the information about Yahweh and what he's going to do to the planet. And I will subjugate all the other nations under you. However, if you disobey me, then you will be subjugated to the other nations. You will be underneath them and they will rule over you. Here's where we see the first time of it. 586, the Jewish people are being ruled by the Babylonians and they have been ruled by Gentile nations and they will continue to be ruled by Gentile nations all the way up until the second coming of Christ. It's called the time of the Gentiles. What God is going to do is he's going to give a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, a vision. And this vision is going to give future events from 586 all the way to the second coming of Christ. This vision is going to tell us all the world powers that are going to come into play in order, in succession. It's going to tell the second coming of Christ. Back in the Old Testament, it was one coming. They didn't see the valley between the two mountain peaks. I'll get to that in a minute. But they see the coming of Christ 
smashing all the governments and setting up his kingdom and it fills the entire earth with one dream that's why we're here in one dream to a pagan king in aramaic a pagan language you're going to get this future event vision for the Jews to see, for the Gentiles to see, and for us to see. Now let's look at this. 2-1. Second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, he had dreams, and he was troubled, and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and astrologers, and uh, Dion Warwick's people. All right? The psychic network. That's what you got. He calls in the psychic network, and he says, I got a dream. When they came, they stood before the king and said to him, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. The astrologers answered the king in Aramaic. Now, your Bible's written in three languages, Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New, and a sprinkling of Aramaic, and it's right here. The reason being is, now God's people have disobeyed to the point where they are subjugated by Gentile rule, and, they're God, and God's going to speak to the Gentiles. That's a slap in the face to Israel is what it is. Just like what Paul said in Romans, that the gospel has gone to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. So the astrologers come and say, tell us, O king, your dream. And we'll interpret it. And the king replied, not, the king replied to the astrologers, this is what I firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once again, they replied, can't do it. You tell us the dream and we'll interpret it. And he says, no, I'm going to tell you again. You tell me what my dream is. If you're truly, you know, these future tellers, then you'll be able to do it. Verse 10, the astrologers answered the king, there's not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. Oops. Now, what did they just admit? You see that in verse 10? They said there's not a man on earth who can do that. They pretty much just hung themselves, didn't they? They said, basically, in that one verse, we have been duping you all along, O king. We've been shucking and jiving. We've been putting on the number five taps and doing a dance. They just signed their own death warrant. You see that? Because they're saying, look, you just tell us a dream. We can make up any old thing and tell you. And he's not going to know, right? But the king is wise. He says, no, if you can tell me your dream, then I'll believe the interpretation. If you can tell me my dream, I'll believe the interpretation. Look at this, verse 12, this made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued, and they start killing them off. But there's a wise man there. There's a man that can tell the future because God's going to give it to him. Guess who he is? He is the man of God. And in verse 17, yeah, let me see. Uh... And Daniel returned to his house, explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning the mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And then Daniel doesn't go run to Nebuchadnezzar first. He praises God, gives thanks, and then he goes. And in verse 24, Daniel went to Arioch, 
whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king and I will interpret the dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. I have found. You see that? He takes credit for it. Verse 26, the king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar. Now, without getting into it too much, the first thing a king does when he takes exiles is he renames them, showing ownership. Daniel, his name means in the Hebrew, God is judge. Belteshazzar means uh, uh, Baal protects. So he changed his name. He says, Daniel, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He gives glory to God right off the bat. He says, these people that you've been dependent on, trusting in, forget it. They're a bunch of charlatans. They'll sell you snake oil. You want true interpretation of, of dreams and visions and future events, you go to God because guess what? He is the author of human history and future events. He says he has shown the king what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the vision that passed through your mind as you lay, as you lay in your bed are these. And he's going to explain the dream. He says, as you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come. The, real, the revealer of mystery showed you what is going to happen. As for me, the mystery has been revealed to me. Not because I have greater wisdom than other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. He says, while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. I think the we is Sedrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, if you look at this chart, everybody have one of these? If you don't, raise your hand. Okay? We got any extra ones floating around? Okay, if you can pass those back. I don't know if this was the exact statue he saw, but from antiquity we can find some of these old carvings and pictures and statues of idols. What I've done for you is you'll see each one of these pieces of the statue is representative of a world power that will come into play. Daniel's about to interpret the dream for him. He's going to say, you, O king, are the head of gold. But after you, someone else is going to come up and destroy you. And after them, someone's going to come up and destroy them. And after them, someone's going to come up and destroy them. And he's going to go through it. Now, we can look back in history and we can see this prophecy fulfilled exactly like it was written down. This is 600 B.C., roughly. 586, 570, don't know. And Babylon is in power at that time. So far, you've seen the Assyrians in power, the Egyptians, and the Babylonians conquered the Egyptians, and then you've got the Medo-Persians, the Grecians, and the Romans come into play. We know that through history. And the exact time, the dates line up with the Bible. 
That's the great thing about your book. The Bible has never been disproven historically, archaeologically, cosmologically, scientifically. It's set in concrete. Yeah, but Bernard, some people say that this has been written after the fact. Well, you go to the Dead Sea Scrolls, they date back 200 B.C. we got a full book of Daniel. Everything we're reading. Now let's look at him interpret it. He says, this is the dream and I will interpret it. You, O king, verse 36, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power, might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. Now, right here, you can hear Nebuchadnezzar's brain click off. I'm the head of gold, yay. Because in chapter 3, he makes himself a 90-foot statue of all gold. He says, I'm not the head, I'm the whole statue. So he clicks off. After you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be fourth kingdom, strong as iron. For iron breaks iron... For iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes are partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some strength of iron in it. Even as you saw iron mixed with clay, as the toes are partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. Now, a couple of things. Man without God and a nation without God makes themselves the focal point. You see man exalting himself. The Bible shows us that a nation without God is like a stupid idol. Daniel's going to have dreams that's going to parallel this of beasts. A nation without God is like a brute beast that just follows his instincts of eating, going to the bathroom, and having sex. He's like a dumb idol, can't speak, can't talk, he's worthless. You see gold, silver, bronze, and iron. The metal decreases in preciousness, but it's going to increase in strength. Gold is not as strong as silver, silver is not as strong as brass, brass is not as strong as metal. The Babylonian Empire were well-educated people, very educated in the arts, philosophy and so forth. The Medo-Persians, not so much intellectually, but stronger militarily. The Grecian Empire, which is represented of the brass belly, not so much intellectually, but stronger militarily, Alexander the Great. And you go down to the Roman Empire, where they were just a crushing machine that stomped on everything. We can look in history, and we see the Medo-Persians in 538 came and destroyed the Babylonians. We've got an account of it right here in Daniel. They come in through the water tunnel and they wipe out um, Belshazzar where he's having a big feast and God's hand writes on the wall. Many, many tickle parson. You've been weighed in the balance, O king. You come up short. Oops, you're going down. That's in the Hebrew. All right? And so we've got an account of the Medo-Persians coming and destroying the Babylonian Empire. Alexander the Great in 371 conquered the entire world in three years died after that of syphilis and then we see the Roman Empire come and destroy the Grecian Empire you look in history just like it was prophesied with this dream now Daniel says that this fourth kingdom this Roman kingdom will be partly iron and partly clay it will be divided it will never be unified 
you have two legs that come down. In about the third century or the fourth century AD, the Roman Empire split. Constantinople went east. So you've got the Caesars and you've got Constantinople. So you've got the kingdom that splits. After that, the Huns and the Goths, the barbarians came and sacked Rome because Rome had weakened themselves to the point they had eaten themselves out morally. Remember the movies of Caesar, homosexuality in the Senate, murder in the Senate, and their leadership structure had decayed to the point where the Huns and the Goths, the barbarians came in and sacked Rome. After that, you don't see one nation ruling the entire world as a singular power any longer. What you've got now are 10 separate identifiable powers in the world. You've got Italy, Australia, or Austria, Spain, France, Britain, Greece, the Balkans, Turkey, Syria, and Egypt. Just like the prophecy laid out. He says they'll never be unified. They'll always be division. Iron and clay, the two legs, Rome splits, and now you've got the ten toes, ten identifiable powers. And you've never seen one world power after that, after 3rd century, 4th century AD. All you historians, am I right? Of course I am. All right, now watch this. Verse 44. In the time of those kings, that's the ten identifiable nations, the powers, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock out of a mountain that was cut out, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. Now, we know from Scripture that Jesus Christ is referred to as the rock. 1 Corinthians 8, Paul talks about it. Actually, 1 Corinthians 10, where they followed the rock in the desert, that rock was Christ. David refers to him as his rock, the horn of his salvation, his shield. Isaiah talks about Israel from the rock from which they were hewn. This account says that this rock was cut out, by not, but not by human hands. What do you think that means? If the rock is Christ and it's cut out, not by human hands, what do you think that means? How was Jesus conceived? Divinely. It was a divine conception, not by the seed of a man. Mary was with child, and she had no relation with Joseph. Now it says this rock is going to come and crush the toes in the time of the kings, world powers and governments that are in play. And then that stone is going to grow into a huge mountain, and a mountain in the Old Testament is symbolic of a kingdom. And it will fill the whole earth, and it says it will endure forever. Now that's a heck of a dream, isn't it? Now here's the question. When Jesus Christ came on the scene, Rome was in power. And it says that he came to that which was his own, but his own did not accept him. The Jewish nation rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And the gospel went to the Gentile nations. Right now, the message is going to us. And Paul says, when the last Gentile is saved, I believe we'll be raptured out, we'll be taken out, and then the Jewish nation will come to faith. And then you will see Jesus Christ come and crush all the world governments and take the nation Israel and exalt her back into a rightful position of ruling the planet and you and I on her coattails. 
because it says that Jesus broke down the barrier, the dividing wall, by abolishing in his flesh the law of commandments contained in ordinances, thus making the two one new man. Jesus said, there's some other sheep I need to get, bring them into the fold. And eventually you'll see Israel and the Gentiles, one nation, will be ruling the earth, but only when Christ comes and smashes all world government. Question. You have a book in the New Testament that tells you all the events that will happen leading up to that time. What's it called? The book of Revelation. I'm going to show you next week a prophecy that is the most accurate prophecy in your Old Testament. It's going to tell us the time period of when these things are going to happen and how it's going to click off. Now, what I want you to see is this. Jesus came, he was rejected. Rome was in power. Third, fourth century A.D., the prophecy was fulfilled where they split, and then you saw ten identifiable nations. According to the prophecy, when Jesus Christ comes to set up his kingdom, what must be in place? Ten identifiable nations, ten identifiable powers, and these in them. Right? Or the prophecy's wrong. Question. Do we have these nations united, these ten identifiable powers united, and we will see the Antichrist come from them and Jesus Christ will come and crush them? Yes, we do. It's called the European Union. Or at one point it was, it was called the European Common Market. They're the ones right now implementing the cashless system, trying to bring in uh, unification of economy. Okay? And so we see it. Now, what you want to see in this statue, that the legs are stretched, we don't know the time period as far as how long it's going to be before Christ comes, but we got, we're going to find out, and I'll show you next week, the events that will happen that are going to click off these time periods. Okay? Are you with me? Okay? So far, so good. You see that? So we'll end with that, but that's what I want you to see, that Nebuchadnezzar got a dream a vision of all the future events. Right now, we're set up for Christ to come. You've got those nations that are starting to come together. We're going to see in the book of Revelation that you're going to have a one-world government and a one-world religious system. And the world's going to think they're bringing about world peace in this utopia. And then, like a thief in the night, Jesus is going to come and smash all pagan world government and reinstate his kingdom with his nation, Israel, and the bride of Christ ruling the planet. Amen. All right. So next week we'll hit a little bit more prophecy, and maybe we'll get into the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation. All right.